Our scripture message this evening's title, A Warning of Warfare and a Publishing of Peace. Warning of Warfare and a Publishing of Peace. And we'll have two scripture readings this evening. And our first, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18, beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. This is an event 50 years prior to Nahum's prophecy, which he will refer to um, in his prophecy. And he will mention the fulfillment of this prophecy, of this event, excuse me, in his prophecy. And then we'll turn in our Bibles to Nahum 1 and we'll consider verses 8 through 15. But first, let's give our attention to 2 Kings 18, beginning in verse 13, under the heading, A Warning of Warfare and a Proclamation of Peace. Let's give our attention to God's Word. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lashish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent Tartan, the rabbi Saris, and Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to bring Hezekiah, king Hezekiah, at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out from them Elakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of, Israel, of, As- of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that the mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And Elakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then Rabshakeh stood and he called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king of Assyria. Thus says the king, 
Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shephravim, Hina, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hands? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Elakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him about the words of Rabshakeh. And then we'll turn in our Bibles now to our second scripture reading, which is Nahum chapter 1. Nahum chapter 1, which can be found on page 930 in your pew Bibles. Nahum chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken into pieces by Him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. And here's our Scripture text this evening. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not arise a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke off from you and I will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave. I will make your grave for you are vile. 
But behold, upon the mountains, the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Here ends the reading of God's Word this evening. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone in this room is familiar with deliverances that only last for a short time. Maybe it's been freedom from a habitual sin and we think, I finally got it. I've kicked this sin only for it to rear its ugly head again. Maybe it's a a, a corrupted, a poisoned relationship. And you think, finally the Lord has brought peace to me. Finally this has been healed only for in a short time. It's a sour again. Maybe it's a bad situation. You feel like you've finally passed through it only to turn the corner and it's staring you in the face again. See, as we return this evening to our series on the minor prophets to Judah, this was the situation Judah found themselves in. For 50 years they have been plagued by Assyria. In our first Scripture reading from 2 Kings 18, Shennacherib was besieging Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. And at that time, Assyria had been marching through the ancient Near East like a hot knife through butter. Redrawing the borders. Brutally wiping out whole nations. That's what they were good at. They could wipe you off the face of the map. But what we didn't read is that in 2 Kings 19, God miraculously, with the angel of the Lord, struck down Sennacherib's army. And Assyria had to flee from Israel. It was an incredible deliverance. One of the most miraculous stories in the Bible. They were saved. But yet when we come to the prophet Nahum, he's writing, and they're still plagued by Assyria. They're still being abused by this ancient power. Still being threatened with exile. Still asking that question that Rabshakeh so powerfully asked them in verse 33 of 2 Kings 18. Will our God deliver us from the hand of Assyria? And Nahum, 50 years later, is God's answer to that question. Nahum answers Sennacherib. Nahum answers Rabshakeh. Nahum answers the evil one, Satan himself. Will God deliver us? The answer is yes in Christ. See, there's a beautiful phrase in verse 9 I just want to draw to your attention this morning before we begin. He says, trouble will not rise up a second time. God will put an end to Assyria. God will put an end to evil. And even with all of their might and all of their glory and all of their gods, when Yahweh saves, He brings a complete 
he brings a full deliverance. See, by faith, Nahum looks forward to Jesus who will put an end finally to evil. He will put an end to the ceaseless round of troubles. He will put an end to the evils and Satan rearing its ugly head. He is God's answer. Trouble will not rise again. In many ways, we are in a similar situation to Judah. We have deliverances that only last for a moment. We have been saved by faith in the cross of Jesus Christ, but we have questions too. God, when will you put an end to this sin? God, when will you fix my relationship? God, when will you lead me out of this situation? Nahum tells us, he calls us, to lift your eyes up and to await the final deliverance to come. Let's look at three movements together this evening from Nahum chapter 1. I want to show you first a great offense, then second a great judgment, and then third, and we might want to phrase it this way, a greater gospel. A great gospel. That's a great offense, a great judgment, and a great gospel. Let's look first at a great offense. I want to begin with a question. What do you think about the Lord? That's the question the prophet begins with in verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? Translators struggle with how to translate this question, but you could read it this way. What do you think about Jehovah? When God comes to your mind, what do you think of? Is He your God? Is He your trustworthy confidant? Is He the Almighty, the Glorious, and the Holy God of the universe? Well, We know how Assyria felt about God. See, for the first time in this book, Nahum is addressing Assyria directly. And what I want you to see is that the Assyrian Empire was very aware that they were not only attacking Judah in their bid to control the ancient Mediterranean. They were aware that God, they were attacking Yahweh Himself, Jehovah. This is made clear in that first scripture reading from 2 Kings 18. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. And the conversation between Rabshakeh and Hezekiah's men. This is what Nahum is referencing in verse 11 when he says, For you, from you came the one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Rabshakeh. Sennacherib. See, historians tell us that by the time Assyria reached the walls of Jerusalem, they had already captured and wiped out 46 fortified cities of Judah. And he had wiped them out with devastating violence. And as they stood at the walls of Jerusalem, and Sennacherib's army was encamped all around them, what we read is Rabshakeh's speech to the people of Jerusalem. Did you catch what he was saying when we read that speech? Matthew Henry says this, Never was the glorious majesty of heaven and earth more daringly, more blasphemously affronted than Sennacherib at that time. They stood up and they blasphemed the God of Israel. They were trying to take Yahweh down a peg or two. 
See, the worthless counselor Nahum is referring to is Sennacherib and his spokesman, Rabshakeh. This refers to not someone who is just looking out for the good of Assyria or even simply the expansion of the empire, but someone who is opposed to God Himself. What do you think about the Lord, Assyria? What do you think about Yahweh? Well, look at what Sennacherib said through his spokesperson. He says, your God is weak. He says, your God can't deliver you from the hands of Assyria. Verse 33. He says, you might as well just trust in this world. He stands up and he says, Sennacherib is greater than Yahweh. Our gods are greater than Yahweh. If you follow Yahweh, you will die. If you follow Sennacherib, you will live. Flip to 2 Kings 18. Because you'll notice also that the main thrust of his argument is trust. Did you see that? Trust. Verse 19, he asks, can you really trust the Lord? In his speech, seven times he asked that question. Can you trust the Lord? 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 I'm trying to nail this home to you folks this evening. Rabshaka is not just assaulting the city. He is not just coming up against Judah. He is attacking God Himself. He is not trustworthy. He cannot fulfill His promises to you. you. He is not being truthful with you. He is not being honest with you, Rabshaka says. Now a few words, going back to Nahum 1, about that phrase, a worthless counselor. See, in the Hebrew, the word for worthless counselor, you may be somewhat familiar with it, is Belial. Belial. And it's actually used throughout the Old and New Testaments to describe someone who is depraved or is despicable. Just a few examples in Deuteronomy 13. The children of Belial are those who try to lure Israelites away from the one true God to worship their pagan gods. In Judges 19, the Belial men were the debased men who demanded the opportunity to sexually abuse their guests, their neighbor's guests. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, Eli's gluttonous sons are called Belial, worthless counselors. A few more, the fool who refused to help David was called Belial. The men who accused Naboth, those who resisted Solomon's rule, all bear this title of Belial, worthless counselor. Yet, the verse that helps us understand the most, this word the most, is actually in the New Testament. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul refers to this Old Testament phrase. Chapter 6, verse 15. Talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness, 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, he says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Do you know what Paul is saying? Belial actually represents Satan himself. It represents Satan. And that even though Sennacherib is the king who is coming up against Judah, and even though Rabshakeh is the one who is speaking, there is one who stands behind them. And that is Satan himself. And so it is with all of the evil kingdoms of this world. And so it is with all evil institutions. And all evil people. Satan stands behind them. And Satan doesn't want anyone to trust God. Satan wants God's people to despair in his protection. Satan wants people to trust themselves. He wants them to trust some other thing. Isn't that what he did in the beginning with Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Is God really trustworthy? Can you trust him? See, this is the great offense. That the kingdom of darkness stands in opposition to the kingdom of light. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, light and darkness cannot merge. The God of Israel and the temple of idols cannot have agreement with each other. Christ and Belial are two diametrically opposed kingdoms. And it is Satan who stands behind Assyria. It is Satan who stands behind the evil institutions of this world. It is Satan who leads this world into wickedness. But there is one who stands with Judah. And it is the Lord Christ. The anointed King. Who rules over all the land through all the ages. And what I want to show you in a moment is that Assyria doesn't even hold a candle. Satan is no match for the God of Israel. So before we look at the second point, I have to ask you a question. What do you think about the Lord? Hezekiah is a great example in 2 Kings 18. An example of how even failures can trust in the Lord. Assyria comes and says, give us the gold, and he pulls it all out of the temple and gives it to him. But then in his moment of faith. He lifts up his eyes to God the Father and he trusts in Him. And God spared Jerusalem, miraculously saving them from certain death. Brothers and sisters, we live in a similar situation. We are at what, we're at one time doomed. We were people who had committed our own sins. We had no hope of salvation, but God has miraculously saved us in Christ. But now, with Nahum, we await the final and the full salvation. That's the great offense. The kingdom of darkness standing against the kingdom of Jesus. Notice with me, second, our, our second point is the great judgment. See, 50 years after Jerusalem's marvelous deliverance, if you flip back to Nahum, uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, the book of Nahum, we'll see that they're still struggling with Assyria. Nineveh is called in chapter 3, verse 1, the bloody city. 
Chapter 3, verse 19, is still doing unceasingly, unceasing evil. And Nahum stands up to the most powerful nation in the world, and he says in the rest of Nahum 1, he says, God is going to wipe you out. See, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how great your army. Boys and girls, it doesn't matter how tall your walls. And historians tell us that Nineveh had a a wall a hundred feet tall. It doesn't matter how wide your moat. They say it was 150 feet wide. See, if you go to the place where Nineveh is today, historians tell us there isn't a trace left of this great city. See, the destruction of Assyria represents the most powerful nations of this world cannot stand in opposition to the Lord. I want to show you three things here. First, notice how God breaks their strength. Here, Nahum addresses the army of Assyria in verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many. See, we don't know how large the Assyrian army would have been, but when they besieged Jerusalem 50 years earlier, we are told in 2 Kings 19 that there was over 185,000 soldiers there. And the military, you must remember, was the strength of Assyria. It was by their military that God, or that they conquered much of the ancient world. But Nahum, but God says through Nahum, listen to this, that they will be absolutely vanquished. How? Look at verse 12. Thus says the Lord. That's his reasoning. How will Assyria, the greatest nation in the world, be conquered? Thus says the Lord, says Nahum. Why do you believe that the greatest nation that's existed for so many years with so much might, with so much glory will fall? Nahum says, because God said. It's the first and only time Nahum uses this phrase in his prophecy. And all God has to do to break the strength of the Assyrians is simply say the word. All he has to do is utter their doom and they will be ended. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Look at the, he gives three examples of God's strength. They are like tangled thorns. Remember to a husbandman, all God, all he needed to do with thorns was throw them in the fire and that's all God has to do and Assyria will be vanquished. They are like drunkards as they drink, just like an intoxicated man can't even walk straight and falls and goes into his own ruin. God says, so will Assyria be. They are consumed like stubble, fully dry. And boys and girls, stubble is that worthless bits of grass or grain or corn after the harvester goes through, which is good for nothing. It's like paper. So as easily as that burns, says God, so can I get rid of Assyria. Here is God's point. Though they are at full strength, though they are many, before the Lord, the strength of the great ones are broken. God will break their strength. Second, he says their king will be forgotten. Verse 14a. Nahum addresses the king, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name being be perpetuated. The you being referred to here is the king. Asher Banipal was the king at that time. 
And remember that this was the strongest man in the world. This was the man who was the king of the greatest nation in the world. And God says he will be absolutely vanquished so that his name will not be remembered. How? Look at verse 14. The Lord has given the commandment. Do you see the pattern here? All God has to do is utter His decree. And He's done. This reminds me of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsels together against the Lord, against His anointed who sits in heaven and He laughs. He is the greatest man in the world by human standards. But according to the Lord, He will be absolutely forgotten. Now there's a third thing that the Lord addresses. He says their strength will be broken, their king will be forgotten, and he says your gods will be nothing. Look at verse 14 again. Now Nahum addresses their gods, from the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. Assyria had many gods. Asher, Sin, Shammah, Adad, Bel, Nebu, Ishtar, Queen of Kinmuri, Urta, Nergal, and Nusuku. God says, I will utterly vanquish them. How? Look at verse 14. The Lord has given His commandment. This is the great judgment. He will take your strength. He will take your king. He will take your gods. And they are nothing before the God of the Bible. Now this would have seemed impossible to Judah. Consider the size and the military might of Assyria. Can God really overthrow this great evil nation? Let us be reminded of the promise that nothing is impossible with God. Sometimes we think of prophecy only ever in connection with Jesus. How His birth was prophesied. His life and His death were prophesied. But when God spoke through the prophets to the nations, He also brought these things about as well. Assyria, Egypt, Greece, and Rome all rose and all fell just like God said they would. You see, Satan, like Rabshakeh, wants to tell you this evening that God is not trustworthy. But history, Bible history, tells you that that He is trustworthy. The very thing He said He would do, He did. Where is the Assyrian army today? Where is Ashurbanipal, the king? Where are their gods? Where is the 100-foot wall of Nineveh? Where is the 150-foot wide moat? Where is their glory? It's gone. As Article 5 of the Belgic Confession says, even the blind are able to perceive that the things foretold in the Scriptures are being fulfilled. Christian, be encouraged. God is true. He will not allow a single one of His promises to fall to the ground. He will not forget you. Here's the application. The mightiest army on the earth 
is no match for Yahweh. Amen? There is no other God. There is no other religion. There is no other truth. Every single one of the Lord's enemies will fall. That's the great judgment. Finally, we need to notice the great gospel. Behold, verse 15, upon the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace. God through Nahum says that Judah, though Assyria is threatening you, and though you are fearful of a time of war, He says that you will have peace. Peace even with Assyria. And when you think about how many times Judah was threatened, how many times they were invaded, how many times they were plundered by the various nations of the world, peace must have felt like something they never could have achieved. Yet God publishes peace to His beleaguered people. There is hope. There is restoration. God's chosen people will not remain in the valley of the shadow of death. He will take out His tired and heavy laden people and He publishes glad tidings. How will they have peace with Assyria? Look at the second half of verse 15. For never again will the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God's people will have peace when evil is totally destroyed. We will have peace when the just penalty is handed down. We will have peace when the wicked and wickedness is no more. But here's the thing. If you know your Bible history, you know that God will destroy Assyria with another ancient Near Eastern powerhouse named Babylon. And you know that King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon will be another thorn in Israel's side. Or excuse me, Judah's side. They will be the ones who will actually exile Judah. And so you might ask, if you're reading this, a skeptical reader, if this is the glad tidings, if this is the good news, is it really that good? Okay, we don't have to deal with Assyria. But now we have to deal with Babylon? We don't have to deal with Sennacherib any longer. But now we have to deal with Nebuchadnezzar? What does behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, mean? Well, John Calvin says, it's a metaphor of someone bringing something precious. Something that gladdens the heart. Something that grants, listen to this, the fullness of joy. To use my Professor Dr. Venema's example, uh, this doesn't happen in our technological days, uh, but imagine during the first world wars when a young man went off to fight in the war, and then there's a knock on the door. It's the postman. The postman only brings either good news or bad news. And when the postman tells you, your son, he is fine. 
he is alive. He's coming home. You would say of the postman that he had beautiful feet because he brought us good news. Nahum is saying that there is a messenger who is coming, who is publishing good news. The best news, our greatest news. And see, that word for peace is a word you probably know. It's the word shalom. One of the richest Hebrew words. Which doesn't mean temporary peace. It means a lasting peace. It means the end of hostilities. A deliverance from trouble. It speaks of wholeness. It speaks of health and security. It speaks of putting things right. It speaks of harmony with God and men. There is a staying power to this peace. You see, the prophet Nahum is actually quoting Isaiah 52. And the prophet Isaiah says to his people in exile, he says, your war is over. You are set free. The God of creation whose promises do not fall to the ground would restore you to favor. He is going to end your warfare. He is going to cover your sin. He is going to restore you to fellowship. Those who walked in a land of darkness have seen a great light. These words do not find their ultimate fulfillment in Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar, but the Lord Jesus Christ who at the beginning of his ministry sat down with the scroll of Isaiah and he said, I came to bring shalom. Peace. True peace. A lasting peace. And brothers and sisters, he brings peace, Nahum tells us, by vanquishing our enemy. Our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, does not fight with a sword or guns, but He fights with His very Spirit and the word of His mouth. And He comes not for Nineveh. He comes not for the evil kingdoms. He comes for the One who stands at all. He comes for Satan Himself and His kingdom of darkness. Christ came to destroy Him. And in the cross, we read in the New Testament that He disarmed the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them in the cross. This is shalom. The lasting peace which was confirmed gloriously when He rose from the dead three days later and death was swallowed up in victory. So should we be surprised when the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 says this, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace and who bring glad tidings of joy. This is what Nahum looked forward to. Not just deliverance from the trials of this world, deliverance from sin and death and hell through the Gospel. There is complete victory in the cross. God says to His people, there is true and lasting peace in Me. Does Satan tempt you like Rabshakeh did to Hezekiah's men? We need to look to the nail-pierced feet of Him who came to bring the good news. Satan doesn't want you to trust God. He wants you to focus on all of your sins and all of your failures and all of your anxieties. He wants you to despair. 
But remember that all of your sins and all of Satan's lies are nothing compared to Christ's message of peace. When you are grieving, look to His peace. When you are confused, look to His peace. When you are guilty, look to His peace. In conclusion, in many ways, our salvation mirrors that of Judah. We have stood against God and committed a great offense when we sinned against Him. And God has promised a great judgment for all evildoers. But there is a great gospel, Paul tells us. All we have to do is confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts in the cross of Jesus Christ and we will be saved. He has done it. He has brought peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for this warning of warfare. That judgment is coming. Not just the judgment of Babylon or of Assyria, but the judgment of God Almighty Himself. But You have looked upon us in pity and mercy. And You have proclaimed peace through the blood of the cross. We thank You for, for Jesus. We thank You that this promise was ultimately fulfilled in Him. And we look to Him for our peace in all of life's trials. Knowing that our full deliverance has come and is coming again when every tear and every sorrow will be wiped away by you in heaven. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.